Today's scripture reading comes from Hebrews 2, verses 6 through 9, and verses 17 through 18. But there is a place where someone has testified, What is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor, and put everything under their feet in putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He was able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, we've been in a series in Hebrews called Greater Than. Uh, the book of Hebrews is largely centered on the glory uh, of Christ, the exaltation of Christ in all things. The idea being that Christ is greater than, better than, more perfect than anything else. He cannot be placed into the same categories uh, as any teacher or any philosopher or any deity that might uh, exist elsewhere. Uh, this is the biblical position, that he is greater than. And now I do realize that this often goes against uh, much of contemporary thoughts when it comes to religious beliefs, particularly in modern society. We tend to avoid absolute truths around these things uh, because often absolute truths can go really bad. Uh, I'm, what I mean by that is we looked at this a bit last week, but many times those who claim superior or um, uh, greater worldviews than others, believe they have greater worldviews than others, do tend to leverage their power to subjugate others, and they refuse to listen to others of varied opinions, and this happens all the time. However, when looking at Christ, it is actually inconsistent, we saw, to maintain any kind of middle ground when it comes to Jesus. Christ claimed to be God, and the writers of the Bible continue on with that claim, in teaching that claim, and as a result, one cannot have a middle ground. Either Christ is who he claimed to be, or he was crazy. He's nothing at all. Uh, or the biblical authors uh, believed and knew that Jesus wasn't true deity, uh, and they instead tried to create some massive conspiracy to convince the world that Jesus was actually God which despite uh, all of the uh, potential arguments for that, they're actually highly improbable. There's just too much evidence that exists, uh, recorded evidence of the actual events that took place. Uh, and it's funny, honestly, you know, uh, a number of years ago, he had books like The Da Vinci Code and uh, Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code and it, all the rage, and then very quickly those things uh, just dissipate because they just don't hold up. Those arguments do not hold up. But given this framework and what we considered last week, that backdrop uh, on the purpose of Hebrews, this passage uh, gives us some insights into the significance of Christ's uh, coming and why it was necessary for him to come. 
Specifically, we need to consider where exactly did things go wrong so that Jesus even needed to come, and what exactly was he trying to fix? And this is what the author of Hebrews is attempting to show us here uh, in our passage today. And so what I want us to hopefully see is just that. Where is the problem and what has Christ come, how has Christ come to fix that problem? Uh, now everyone in the world understands that there is something wrong in the world, right? For the most part, everyone would say that there is something that needs to be fixed. And everyone has different methods or beliefs about how we go about fixing the problem. You know, every world religion has its different prescriptions of how we're going, how we're going to go about fixing our problems. Uh, even in secularism or those with a more humanistic or uh, scientific worldview, the, all the problems that we experience in life, they'll be solved through science or technological advances or modern medicine uh, or broad inclusivity or whatever it might be. Everybody's got opinions about the problems that we have and how we go about fixing those problems. And all of them are the results of what one believes about man and about our problem. Okay, so one's position on this will be determined by what we believe about man and what we believe about our problem. And what we see today is the Christian view of what is wrong with humanity and also how we go about fixing the problems. All of, the, of all of the views, I think that Christianity actually has the most damning views of all of them. And yet at the same time, it also has the most consistent and most hopeful view of man and our problem. And so let's take a look at what that is. Uh, I want to see that in this in three ways. We're going to see here in our passage uh, our cosmic position, our cosmic rebellion, and his cosmic redemption. Right, so our cosmic position, what is man? Our cosmic rebellion, what's our problem? And his cosmic redemption, what's the solution? All right, so first, our cosmic position. Look at, uh, look at the, our passage here. The author, uh, in the very, part of, very beginning part of our passage, passage, is quoting Psalm 8, in which David, the psalmist, is describing the majesty and the glory of God in all creation, how God set the stars and the moon in, in their place. Um, and in light of that grandeur, we see this noted in our passage, uh, that though humanity was given rule and dominion over creation, that man and humanity was uh, crowned with glory and honor, David asks the significant question, what is man among this creation? What is man that God is mindful of us, given the glory and the majesty of God himself and what God has created in the world? Who are we exactly? Well, considering the vastness of the universe, I think it's, a, it's a, an appropriate question. I mean, why do we, as humanity, believe ourselves to be significant when we live on this speck of dust in the vastness of the universe. I mean, David feels this tension that the universe is so vast, who am I? I mean, am I not just some animal on a speck of dust in the broad universe? Now, of course, the Bible doesn't see humanity in that way. In Genesis 1, we see how God views in the biblical perspective on 
uh, on humanity. It says that God created us in his image, that he created us to rule over creation with immortality like the angels. <clears throat> we were created with a, a value that exceeds anything else in creation. Nothing else in all of creation has been created in the image of God. And so as Psalm 8 and here in Hebrews 2, uh, man is truly exalted in the earth. There is nothing like humanity on earth. God created us uniquely and in a special way. Now Psalm 8, uh, particularly in verse 4, says that, uh, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. I want to just touch on that really quick because even in Hebrews 2, <clears throat> there's some language there that I know that could be a little confusing. What exactly does that mean? Well, for David, in the Hebrew, it's translated heavenly beings. Uh, the word that's translated as heavenly beings is Elohim, in, uh, in which, by the way, often can be referencing different uh, spiritual beings, but it was also one of the words that was used uh, to, uh, to describe God uh, himself. Uh, but then in Hebrews 2, it says, you made him for a little, uh, you made him for a while a little lower than the angels. Uh, the author there in Hebrews is using the Greek word for angels. Uh, and here's the point of all of this, that though there are, there are various translations, they kind of shake out this way. Psalm 8 uh, in one translation says heavenly beings. In others, it says angels. Uh, in others, in the New American Standard Bible, it says God. But the point of all of that is that regardless of how one translates this word, the point is that man has great significance in creation. We were created with eternality in mind. It's important to remember. It's part of what it means to be human. Now, this is obviously significantly different than a lot of contemporary thought. There are many who would not agree with that ideology. For some, man is simply a product of random occurrences that happen without purpose or without design. And random occurrences, by their nature, cannot develop into something with such a great significance. You know, it's inconsistent and even delusional, I think, to say, I am a product of coincidences, but have value and purpose. I mean, randomness and coincidences, by their nature, eliminate so much of uh, purpose and aim, especially in any kind of transcendent or universal way. I mean, it's the old analogy uh, by William Paley. He was um, a man who ar essentially argued, maybe you've heard it, the watchmaker argument. Essentially, he argued that the world uh, in which we live functions with such interconnectedness. There's such complexity, a uh, complexity like a watch uh, is complex, and that that complexity could not possibly be the result of random occurrences. Right, we would never find a watch on the side of the road and just assume it got there over a long period of time through a series of various uh, random occurrences. But rather, when we find a watch, we assume that there must then be a watchmaker who made the watch. <clears throat> and of course, for us, we understand the complexities of the universe. They point us to a creator. We, they point us to one who has created and shaped things, including humanity, in particular kinds of ways. I mean, how much more complex is humanity than a watch? I mean, psychologists will say that the most complex thing in the universe is the human brain. I mean, who has created and shaped the human brain except one capable of doing so? 
And so we would say that God himself has created humanity intentionally and with purpose. And I also realize that there are assertions that people will make that one does, one does not need God and does not need uh, Christianity to find any kind of purpose. That one can find purpose or one can find a sense of justice or can find other systems of order without a God. That one can have dignity and have all the ideals that we hold today as being true and good, that we can have all of those without God. But again, to have purpose in this way is completely inconsistent with reality. And historians actually have pushed on this quite a bit, that historically, until the advent of widespread Christianity, these ideas just did not exist broadly throughout humanity. Um, uh, the uh, professor of history at Stanford University, C. John uh, Somerville, <clears throat> also worked at the University of Florida. He demonstrated often to his more atheistic or anti-religious students uh, that how exactly Christianity became such a, a dominant worldview-shaping uh, idea, that they actually had been incredibly Christianized, even though they had rejected the Christian faith. Uh, and he did so by showing the values of the shame and honor cultures that existed throughout history. And he would list all of the different characteristics that were um, held up as the ideal, especially in places like the pagan uh, northern Europe before the advent of Christianity. And he would say that in those societies, what you would see um, as prized would be pride and a strict ethic of revenge, the instilling of fear, the supreme importance of one's reputation and loyalty to one's tribe. These were the things that were held up as ideal. But then he would give a list of corresponding Christian values, completely unknown to the pagans of Europe. Uh, ideals like humility and forgiveness and peaceableness and service to others and respect for the dignity of all people who have been made in the image of God. And what was often surprising to him at first, but he, he discovered to be pretty standard, is that many would be completely surprised to learn how deeply Christianized they had become, how deeply Christianity has shaped their thinking. Humi uh, humility and forgiveness and peaceableness and all of these things that we hold to be true can really only come from a belief that man was great, uh, made with value and with dignity and with a purpose. And his point was that the ideals that we hold as valuable today are essentially borrowed capital from Christianity. If one does not hold Christian, uh, the Christian worldview uh, or the Christian faith, they're borrowing capital. They're taking those things because those ideals do not generate from secularism or paganism. They only generate from the Christian worldview, even though the supernatural, uh, supernatural elements of the faith might be, neglect, might be neglected or rejected. We have value. And we hold, um, we hold a special place in creation because we've been created in the image of God. And we cannot see man as anything less without digressing back into a pre-Christian world with pre-Christian ideology and uh, priorities. In other words, for us to have value and purpose, right, we must see that this is our cosmic position that we have in God's creation, that we have been created in the image of God. But why argue this? Why did I just take all that time to try to uh, make that point? 
because it's important for us to see how significant we are within creation in order for us to see the significance of the problem that we have. I argue all of this because if we have been made, it, made in this uh, exalted position, then because of that, we have a cosmic rebellion problem, which is a significant one. Let me explain to you what I mean. Uh, the Bible testifies, and the author here emphasized, that of course something has gone terribly wrong. Right? In Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, in Psalm 8, in Hebrews 2, we are told of the exaltedness of humanity and creation. But then, of course, you get to Genesis 3, which tells us that all of creation was corrupted, that our position of exaltation was polluted, that the image of God that is in us is obscured. Why? Because the ones who were created in exaltation as image bearers of the Creator rebelled against that Creator. And we have given up our place of honor and glory in order to be our own masters. As humans, we do not want to be second to God or made in the image of God. We want to be God himself. I mean, what exactly was the temptation that Satan tempted Eve, Adam and Eve with in Genesis 3? Well, he tells them that if they rebel, that they can be like God. And it's so important for us to know that that temptation is still the ultimate rebellion, still the ultimate temptation. We want to rule over our own destinies without the constraints of external influences, right? This is the basis and reason for all sin. I mean, how common is it for us to say things that I want to be the master of my own destiny? Particularly in modern society, we give little credence to the idea of submission, we do not want to acknowledge God, the God who has created us, because that would be admitting there is someone to whom we are subject, and this becomes a reason to resist God himself. And the rebellion, this cosmic rebellion, it's cosmic because of our position in creation. The fact that we are made in the image of God makes our rebellion so much greater C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce, uh, he says this in relation to that idea. I think he puts it well. He said, everything else is good when it looks to him and bad when it turns from him. And the higher and mightier it is in the natural order, the more demonic it will be if he, if be it rebels. It's not out of bad mice or bad fleas you make demons but out of archangels. I mean, do you see Lewis's point? That the greater one is in the natural order, the more demonic and wicked the rebellion is. And who is the greatest in creation? Well, of course, we are. We are the highest and mightiest in the natural order because of the way that God has created us. And so, our rebellion... It becomes that much greater, that much more demonic for us to rebel. You know, there's a preacher a number of years ago uh, thinking about and uh, preaching on, you know, what, is, what has man become? Who are we? What have, what have we devolved into? And he, he gave a train of thought that's always stuck with me. He puts it this way. He said, when God says, stars appear and burn bright, they do. 
When God says planets spin in motion, the planets, they begin to spin. When God says ocean tides go to this point and go no further, they listen and they go no further. When God says storm be still, the storm, it ceases. But when God says to man, come to me and live according to my word, we say no. How far we have fallen. How far we have fallen. You and I together so often rebel against the voice of our creator. It is a cosmic rebellion and we do it almost every day. We have rebelled against our position in the natural order as those that have been divinely sanctioned to be rulers over creation. Those, And as a result of that, it has uh, resulted in physical death for us. And in so doing, we have rebelled against our position as image bearers and subjects to the Most High God, which has thus resulted in spiritual death. And the irony of it all, our rebellion has also blinded us to the realities of our own condition. G.K. Chesterton once said that it's not that we can't see the solution, it is that we can't see the problem. That is so often a reality for us. This is our cosmic rebellion against God that has resulted in death. So we've been, we are um, in our role, in our position. We have been made in the image of God. Cosmic things in mind, eternality in mind. However, in a desire to be our own masters, we have rebelled against God. This has been our cosmic rebellion. That's man. That's our problem. What then is our solution? Well, the solution is his cosmic redemption. I mean, in many ways, that, that could just be the end of the story, what, what I've just said. That we are left in our, in our rebellion and we're left to the consequences of it. However, the biblical story does not end with just who we are and our problem. It also reveals to us the solution to our problem. This is the great hope that we possess. That God, in his love, in his mercy, continues to interact with his rebellious crown jewel of creation. I mean, as argued, our rebellion is nothing short of cosmic, and thus the magnitude of our rebellion, it does require a solution of equal magnitude. And the solution is God, despite our rejection of him, continues to pursue us. He pursues us in a way that seems so counterintuitive, but ultimately reveals the great love of our creator. And how does God show his continued love for his creation? Well, we see it in our passage. Let me reread for us uh, verses, uh, verse 9 and then uh, 17 and 18. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become the merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What is being described there? I mean, it's describing the incarnation. It is describing the coming of Jesus. I mean, so often 
I think we lose the impact of what the incarnation is. It is God coming to man. It is God sending his son, Jesus, to us. And so often the incarnation of Jesus uh, becomes just kind of standard doctrine for us. Uh, we often don't think about the gravity of it, the weight of what exactly it is that's being described, but consider what is being told to us by the coming of Jesus, the Son of God, that the one who is above the angels makes himself lower than the angels in order to identify with our weakness. The transcendent one who sits outside of time and space steps into our limited and temporal reality. The author of the universe's story, writes himself into the story that we might know him. The immortal and matchless God takes on flesh. This is the incarnation. And this is how he goes about accomplishing redemption. It's a cosmic redemption. And consider the significance of this. It shows us the significance with which we have been created in human flesh. We have been made in the image of God. And that he took on human form. It's important for us to know, despite what might be said other places, that we are not just some animation of uh, the collect an animated collection of atoms, but rather we are made in the very image of God. Jesus himself took on that flesh. It shows us the seriousness with which God takes our rebellion. He is not passive about it, but rather he has stepped in by sending his son to deal with the consequences of a rebellion. And it shows us the great compassion of God on those in Christ. For he has identified with our mortal weakness. Jesus has crushed uh, sin with his perfect life. He has crushed death in his resurrection. And as we have faith in him, we have hope that our mortal weakness will turn into never-ending uh, never vitality, that we will one day sin no more, that death will one day completely lose its power over us as we step into uh, the eternity that we have been created for. I mean, Jesus is the one who is able to bring the corruptible to incorruptibility, the mortal to immortality, the sinner to righteousness, the rebellious, the rebellious to faithfulness, the dead to life. And so I hope, I hope that we see our cosmic position in creation. Remember that we are made in the image of God. That we remember, though, the cosmic rebellion, that because we have been made in the image of God, our rebellion is that much greater. But that we would remember his cosmic redemption in Jesus. Because it changes everything. Radically changes everything. And I hope this provides us hope to know that we are that loved, that seen, that cared for, and that God is calling us back to himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. And we thank you that though you saw uh, our rebellion, you did not leave us there, but you sent your son to accomplish a work that we could not accomplish, uh, to redeem us. I pray that these great truths... Uh, would remind us continually of how you are in pursuit of us and how much you love us. And would you, by your spirits, reveal in us the ways that that rebellion still exists, that we might bring those things before you, trusting and believing that you are a forgiving God. Help us in this, Lord. 
ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.